Okay, I want to speak this morning, continue on the series on vision. Um, I have a saying that I adopted in my life many, many years ago. It's a relatively familiar business mandate or mantra, uh, and it says this. You've probably heard it before. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. It's well known in business. And I say this to my team, the leadership team that we have here, if you don't plan for 2019 and 2018, you are going to miss 2019. It's too late to plan for 2019 when it arrives. So we've got to put plans in place, we've got to get wheels in motion, we've got to get plans and budgets and organisation happening now so that we can commence the year really, really well. Because if we wait till we get back from summer holiday to start our planning, we miss quarter one, which is essentially um, about 60 or 70, that only leaves 60 to 70% of the year. But what, is, what does this mean for you? Well, this is why as a church, I particularly like to put aside the end of the year to speak about vision to speak about the future, to speak about what God is saying to our church and what he's leading us into. This is what consumes me and a large part of my time as the senior leader of the church. But my goal isn't just to be wandering off on that journey by myself. Because we all know that uh, a leader who has no one following them is just a crazy man going on a long walk by himself. And I have been accused of that, but I don't want to remain that. So I'd like to even to join me on the journey as we go together as a church. This is not a, not, not a let's see what Phil does thing, let's do this together as family. And I keep repeating it, reinforcing it, and talking about it because I really want to drive this uh, message of vision deep into the core of who we are as a family. We've been speaking about it the last se- several weeks. There are messages on our app that are called vision messages. You can listen to those, grab them by the podcast, grab them on the live stream, however you like to refresh yourself with messages uh, that um, build you, then you do that. But we make it available in all those options. What's happening today? Today I want to speak to this message about three parts and there's a bonus. Mm. Free bonus, free bonus, no cost to you. The first thing I want to do is look at Jesus. Jesus is going to teach us something this morning. I want to draw you something on the whiteboard when I get to that part, just to help you to see uh, what Jesus wants to shape us with. Secondly, I think we'll just bring the the bonus in there. I'll tell you what that is when we get to it. The second part of the the message itself is I want to dive deep on some of the vision. I had some feedback from the elders during the week, and I've I've, uh, processed it, and I'm, I'm responding to it. And finally, I suppose we need to talk about how you respond to what's happening today, because Messages are designed and structured by the Holy Spirit to build us up, but for a purpose, for a response. You're not statues, you're disciples. Disciples respond. So, so here's my first thought as we get started uh, on today. Where there is vision and purpose, there is opposition. It's normal. It's absolutely normal. When we get into a place where we seek to be in a different place than we are today, there's a journey that results, and as the journey comes, it provides opposition. And we just need to understand that. Um, Last week I spoke about Joseph. The week before, Ash mentioned something about Joseph. We talked about this mantle that's been given prophetically to this church, and we believe that to be true. Like, man, that's a ream of word from God. And under that, Joseph gets a dream, 
because he accepts the mantle, the technicolored mantle, and under that dream he goes on a journey. Well, that's opposition. Now, last week I took particular effort and consideration to acknowledge the many things that are going on in our church family. Our household, our family, our whanau has had uh, some trauma that we've been dealing with, and I spoke briefly about it last week. But I also wanted to acknowledge that it's widespread. It's not just me. There's other stuff going on, and we need to walk through that. And that's what I want to speak at today. I want to show you that it's normal, and this is kind of where my message uh, starts with the, the title of the message. This is Jesus in the Desert, and the message today is called Tested. You can be sure when you choose to say yes to God and go on a journey with Him, you'll be tested. It's not bad. It's not because you're wrong. Who said yay? Brownie points. <laughs> Mrs. Strong, excellent. That's a bonus for me. Someone agreed. <laughs> what do you know? My little pep talk last week worked. We've got the church agreeing with me now. Awesome. Come on. Well, at least my wife agrees with me. So what I want to do is I want to have a look at Jesus, and we're going to do that, and I just briefly want to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, right at the beginning of his ministry. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart, and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son, you bring me great joy. That's God the Father speaking. Then the Spirit compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals, and angels took care of him. Happy days, this is the good news. Jesus receives his um, affirmation from the Father, and he responds to that. And what we see in this very short passage is Jesus was baptized, Jesus was led, Jesus fasted, and then Jesus was tested. So if it's good for Jesus, it's good for you. That's right, Krista, absolutely, and everyone else around you. If it's good for Jesus... It's good for us. Perhaps some of you need to pause right here, right now, and acknowledge that your circumstances are not, in fact, bad. The devil is not under every shadow. God's shaping you. God's preparing you. God's testing you. That is how he works. It's good news. It's in the Bible. It means it's good for us. We've got to receive this as an opportunity to move in what God's saying. So Jesus was in the desert for 40 days, and 40 is a significant number in the Bible. Moses took 40 years for God to prepare Moses for the mission that he had for him. The Israelites, once they'd been set free from Egypt, how many years did they walk in the desert? That's not a trick question, that's right, it's 40. Because they were being tested by God and prepared for what he had for them in the promise. And here we see Jesus, it says, tempted by Satan for 40 days among the wild animals and angels took care of him. So he wasn't alone. He had animals to talk to and angels to help him. But there's a period of testing. The number 40 in the Bible always represents hardship. Hardship is normal. Hardship is life. Hardship is what we get to walk through. This week, I felt like I've been going through hardship. This week, I've been wrestling with some issues. 
And when I'm in hardship, here's what I do. I give myself a pep talk. I talk to myself. I say, self, toughen up. Self, take a concrete pill. Self, get on with it. I've got to talk to myself all the time. Because if I pause and lie down in the fetal position, sucking my thumb every time I'm in hardship, then the world basically stops for everyone that's involved with me. And that's just not the way it's designed. So that's a word of encouragement, free gift for some of you. It's not the bonus, but it's a free gift. Start talking to yourself. Start telling yourself. Self, toughen up. Self, take a concrete pool. Self, get on with it. Make sure you write that down. Why, is this, why am I setting us up like this? Why do you, why you want to listen to this? Well, God's got some good news for us. And I want to show you how Jesus, Jesus prepares us uh, for what we're going through and opposition. Remember, we've got opposition because we're going on a journey, and the opposition is us getting tested. And this is what Jesus is about to show us. If you could bring my whiteboard out, I just want to show you something that's in my head. Welcome to my world. Here's the phrase that I'm just going to linger on. Or watch out. Watch out. Here's here's the phrase I want to linger on for the next little bit. Oh, my lovely assistant destroys place. Our nature as humans draws us towards missing the mark. Missing the mark is called sin. Any time where we don't hit God's holiness, we miss the mark. And our nature as human beings draws us towards that. It's the way it happened at the beginning of humankind. But good news, praise God, there's an answer that helps us. His spirit, God's spirit, draws us towards righteousness. And Jesus models this in this period of time of 40 days that we got a little bit of insight to. Not a lot of insight, a little bit of insight. And to get more insight, we need to go back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, because Matthew writes it for his audience in just a little more detail. None of these guys were there. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit out into the desert, and the only people he got to hang out with was animals and angels. So none of the gospel writers were there. They're going by what Jesus told them as they journeyed together, and, and the Holy Spirit helped them to write it down. Matthew puts a little more detail into it for us, and I just want to show you because we, kind of, we, we, we need to pick up some lessons so what happens is we have um, some columns, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to write it up here, and if you can't see it, come and take a photo of it at the end of the day, all right, before you go home, because this is kind of going to be really good notes for you. And how many times was Jesus recorded to be tempted in the Bible, Matthew chapter four, uh, 4? Three, that's right, yeah, again, not a trick question. So we're going to um, call that T1, T2, and T3. Even though I like my coffee, you do need to know I like tea as well. Yeah. T2 especially, that leaf tea, let it sit. I like to let it sit for four minutes. I program the timer on the microwave. I go away and I come back and my tea is very nice. <laughs> T2, just a little advert. Okay. So, T1, what happens? Let's look in the Bible. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 4, sorry. 
Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to tempt by the devil. Forty days, forty nights, he fasted and became hungry. See, the key thing here is, what do we learn? This is not even in my notes, but fasting prepares us spiritually for physical challenge. So what was Jesus doing when he was fasting, apart from going hungry? He was weakening his flesh to strengthen his spirit. Ooh, that's a good word for someone. During that time, the devil called Satan came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread, which is actually quite a cool trick to do when you're hungry. But because the devil said it, we, 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 you can kind of guess. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out that's not a good idea. The trick. Jesus told him no. Okay, well, what's happening here? If you're the son of God, well, first and foremost, you need to understand the language. He doesn't actually say, if you're the son of God in our language, that has a different meaning. What he's saying is, because you're the son of God, turn those stones into bread. Satan wasn't arguing with who Jesus was. He knew who he was. Remember, Satan came from heaven, and Jesus was where? In heaven, with the Father at the beginning of all time, and the world was created through him, so Satan knows who Jesus is. He says, seeing as you're the son of God, why don't you take the stone and make it a bread? Here is the first temptation. It's called lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. And it's all about personal need. So some of you will be distracted by personal needs. Devil's going to put it in front of you and he's going to say, hey, why don't you do this? Because you're a Christian and God loves you. And you're going to go, oh, maybe that is a good idea. Maybe I should take care of myself. It's called lust of the eyes. And we look after personal needs. And when we do that, we have a problem. And the problem is, when we do that, we come to the place, this is our response, where we deny God. Because the devil says, hey, you should do this, and it takes your focus off God, and it puts your focus on your needs. And in doing so, you deny the one you call Lord. It's not a cool trick. We place our needs on the throne of our life instead of the one who's Lord. So suddenly our needs become the Lord of our life. They demand what we do and what we say and what, what we serve. We take God off the throne and put our circumstances on the throne. Often, in this case, we end up eating what he blessed us with when we were supposed to give it to someone else. That's why those random act of kindness cards are so cool. Because you do get to buy a Big Mac, but you can buy one for someone else as well. Give them a card and say, God loves you. He loves Big Macs. Just a thought. Man, there's lots of wisdom today. You guys are getting bonus. Jesus says to the devil, no. The scriptures actually say something, this. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, I think it's verse 3. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. What he's saying, we need to look to God as our provider. Jesus responds, so this is Jesus, we'll call him the son of God, because he is. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Jesus responds and says, no, we must put our focus on God. I read this quote this week. Jesus endured testing by trusting in the sufficiency of God's gracious care. So when you're being tested, you can go and focus on your needs, 
or you can focus on the gracious care of God who said he'll take care of you. Jesus endured the testing by trusting in the sufficiency of God's care instead of doing it for himself. So when we're tested and God is allowing us to be tested, we think that he's forgotten us. And so we shift him off the throne, we put ourselves on the throne, and we try and fix the problem that we're facing. When actually God wants you to wait on him. What is God teaching us here, or trying to teach us here? So this is, um, over here we've got God's aim. God's aim, or God's goal for us, because we're all disciples, right? Again, not a trick question, (laughs) rhetoric. We're God's disciples, because we're God's disciple, he's trying to disciple us, which means he's trying to grow us up, which he's trying to make us more like Christ. So he always has an aim in what happens in our lives. He makes all things work together for the good of those who are called according to God's purpose in their life. So God has a goal. What's God's goal here? Humility. I was just smiling while Lisa was doing her communion message. She's setting you all up for what I was going to share with you. Humility. God always wants us to be humble before him. What is humility? My definition of humility is seeing ourselves as God sees us. Not the way we feel. Not the way we think. Not the way we've been told we are. Not the way our circumstances might describe us. We've got to give ourselves a pep talk. We've got to say to ourselves, even though I'm standing knee deep in some muck, I'm still a child of God. Even though I feel alone, I am not alone because God is always with me. Even though I feel like I'm in darkness, Jesus is my light because the Bible says he is the light of the world. We've got to Understand that our circumstances are defined not by what we think or feel, but by what God says, and humility is the gift God gives us to be able to live like that. Temptation number one, the response that's wrong is to deny God. The response that's right is to be humble before him. T2, let's look at the next verse. The devil took him to the holy city of Jerusalem, not literally, well maybe, we don't know, but no one saw him. The highest point of the temple, which looks out over the court, but also if you look at the geography of the city of David, the highest place where the temple was, that top corner, the highest point of the temple, also looked out of the city, outside the walls, into an abyss. It was about 400 feet deep. And then the devil says, if, or seeing as, you are the Son of God, jump off! And... The Bible even says in Psalm 91, he will order his angels to protect you and they'll hold you up with their hands and you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Devil knows scripture. He's accurately quoting it even though it's out of context. And he'll twist its meaning to trick you to do what he wants you to do, which is called missing the mark. Mm-hmm. Jesus says something different. So what, what's going on here? The devil was drawing us into this place, and this is actually called, uh, my language, I made this up, it's the lust or the lure of fantasy. There is a response we can make that is fanatical, based on fantasy. We can just dream up that God's going to do something completely out of the box, because we've been crazy. Jump off a cliff and God's going to save you. Mm. Jesus didn't do it. I wouldn't recommend it. God calls us to a place of faith, 
but not stupidity. And the lust or the lure of fantasy will step us outside of God's protection and provision. So what happens when we do this, and this is going to hurt some of you, sorry, we test God. Let me say this very slowly and very clearly so you don't miss it. Testing God is the antithesis of faith. Opposite of faith. Testing God is not faith. When you test God, you're questioning God. It's not faith. Don't trick yourself. It is not faith. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean you have to do it. But Gideon, but Gideon, well, God is gracious on Gideon. He'll be, he'll be gracious on you as well. Testing God is the antithesis of faith. It's the opposite of faith. And what happens when we do that, so I'm going to write, I'll, I'll just, I won't write it up there, but it's the opposite of faith. And what we're doing is we're questioning what God said. Who did that in Genesis? Satan did it, and Eve went, oh, yeah, that's right. Didn't go so well for her. Don't test God. Jesus responds. He says, no. Well, the scriptures actually also say you must not test the Lord your God. So he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 16, I think. Yeah, verse 16. Jesus didn't doubt God's provision or protection or his promises. What's, what's Jesus Um, What's God trying to do here? He's trying to give us the gift of faith. Where you go, well, God said it. I believe it. Hebrews 11. Faith. The substance of things hopeful, but not yet. So do we put our faith in what we see or what God says? Testing God is putting faith in what we see. That's not faith. Hmm. Are you doing okay? I've only got one more temptation to get through, so you should be all right. The third one. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain. I think it was probably in his imagination, but never know. He can be in all places at all times. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil says, I will give it all to you if you kneel down and worship me. Hmm. Here's a point. Your final resistance will always be the weakest area of your life. It's like your last effort to hold on to being Lord of your life. It will reveal to me, if I'm sitting with you, the big moment that we need to deal with. Remember Satan. He was an angel in heaven. He was like the choir master, wasn't he? And he decided that he wanted to be worshipped. And in heaven, there's only one who is worshipped, and so Satan fell. What does he do here? Same. Wants to be worshipped. If you worship me, then it will go well for you, and that's not true. So this is what I'm calling the pride of life. And it's not about being worshipped, because that was Satan's temptation. That's actually about what the prize is. Satan had every right to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world because he had the authority still. And Satan probably knew that Jesus was going to get it back, but if if Satan could get Jesus to bypass the cross, there's no hope for you and me. Jesus gets back the authority, but you and me, well, we've got no options. Maybe killing goats for the rest of our lives. 
So the pride of life draws us into that place, and in this place, what's our problem? We try to be God. And when we try to be God, it doesn't work. So, so Jesus then quotes also Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. And he says this, You must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. What is God's goal here? God's goal is what I'm calling righteousness, which simple language is just defined as right standing with God. So being in that good place up there. And this looks like worship. When you yield yourself before God and say only God is worthy of worship, that's righteousness, standing in the right place. Here's the point. God wants us to grow in the midst of our testing that we would become more like him. And testing comes. Opposition comes. I saw this on um, social media last night. There's a plant, if you can't see it, in the middle of a storm. And the plant is in the middle of the rain and it's messy and it's probably cold and, and the plant's going, well, this isn't what I hoped for in life. This is not what I wanted. And then the storm passes, the sun comes out and the plant goes, oh, maybe this is what I needed. God always has a purpose in the storm, in the opposition, in the trial, in the testing. And it will be your beauty, spiritually, your fruitfulness, this leads me to the prophetic encouragement that God gave me during the week because, like I said, we've been having some challenges. And the Lord said this to me in my prayer time, and it's a word for us as a family. Let me read it to you. The storm will pass. Keep your feet firmly planted. Do not move. Do not deviate. Even though the storm will batter you, it will end. We must declare, says God, sunny days are coming. Do you want to say that with me? Just to give me a little bit of encouragement. Come on. Sunny days are coming. Let's say it one more time. Sunny days are coming. You say amen to that. You agree with God. You agree with God and may be established on earth by your amen as it is already established in heaven. What I want to do is I want to now talk about, um, I want to dive deep on something for the church. And I'm going to do it quickly um, because I am repeating what I've said before. But like I said, I got some feedback from the elders during the week and I, they felt like, um, like I was on this plan to tell you all the amazing things that we're working on as a church. And the guys are like, hey, it's just a bit confusing. So just go deep, go deep. So that's what we're going to do today. I want to remind you, and I will keep reminding you what our mission is. Our mission is to activate community transformation. This is our mission statement. This is published everywhere. You can get copies of it for your fridge or your wall or your screensaver if you want. We serve the purpose of activating community transformation, and that looks like uh, happening through church. It looks like happening through our social endeavors, and it looks like happening through enterprise. We were sitting around having dinner this week as elders, and um, all of a sudden we started talking about enterprise, and we talked about activating people in their God-given dreams so that they would have purpose. And I suddenly realized that this document that I wrote in 2016 is accurate for that. Look at the bottom one. We are called to release purpose. As kingdom citizens, we're challenged to release purpose by creating and sustaining healthy God-fearing enterprise. What does that look like? Setting you on fire with God's dreams for your life. 
activating you in it, empowering you in it, releasing you in it, and supporting you in it. When we do that together, all of us are stronger than one of us. So we have people in our team who are gifted in doing that, and I pray that as, like I shared that message of Joseph, as you come under the mantle of this church and agree with what God is saying, God will begin to ignite dreams in you like he did for Joseph. As you agree with those dreams, our job is to support you and activate you in that so you can go on your journey, and we're committed to it, 100%. The elders were really excited the other night when we realized we'd already written the words, we didn't know what it meant. How funny is God? This is our vision statement. It's our vision to reach a thousand people a week with the message of God's truth. Everything we do is working towards achieving that, um, and that's 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 exciting for us. You know, um, there are a number of ways we're going to do that. The strategies are working on how we gather together. Strategies are working on our media channels. Strategies are developing people and also growing our leaders. I just want to dive deep on the developing people one. I did this last week. One of the things that is a clear mandate for us as a church that we must disciple people. There are specific prophetic words in the history of this church that are recorded in our archives that say, through the Spirit of God, we are a church who will be an apostolic training center, meaning we will train people in the ways of God in order that they would reach out to others and change their lives. Like I said, you're the ministers. So we've got to grow you. And so what what I'm saying, the word I'm using is um, the theme is we've got to make the local church stronger. Everything we do around discipleship is taking believers and making them stronger. This is where you come in. This is where you can connect and be part of what we're doing, or you can sit there and watch. But we are going to grow people, make them stronger for their mission in life. That is our purpose. I want to speak specifically about two areas in that. And I spoke about these last week, but I want to dive a little deeper also want to quote a book that I read recently, and um, I'll make a statement, and then I'll read you a quote. We believe the most effective form of mission in the world is nationals evangelizing nationals. What I mean by that is when we go into India, the most effective form of long-term successful evangelism is Indians evangelizing Indians. When we go into Indonesia, as I do um, quite often, uh, we don't believe that the white man, me, going into Indonesia and speaking at a conference to people hoping they give their lives to Jesus, we do not believe that is a long-term effective strategy. It creates hype, it gets cards filled in, but it's unsustainable and actually ineffective for the kingdom. What we believe Far more effective, and it's in this book, is nationals evangelizing nationals. That means Indonesians evangelizing Indonesians. Long-term discipleship strategies. Let me give you an example of that out of this book. This book is called Revolution and World Missions, and you can get it for free. Just Google search it, and you can get it sent to you for free. It's an amazing book. It's really powerful insofar as how we think about missions. He writes this. Notice, the bonus was the prophetic word, sorry. I didn't, I didn't highlight that very clearly at all. Was it a good bonus, though? Yeah. It's like you got a chocolate bar, you didn't realize you had a chocolate bar. So there's no calories. That is a bonus, especially this time of year. Okay, here's what the author says. Typical of many indigenous missionary movements, which is nationals, evangelizing nationals, Typical uh, that have sprung up overnight is the work of a brother from India. He's a former military officer who gave up a commission 
and an army career to help start a ministry team in an unreached area. He now leads more than 400 full-time missionaries. Like other indigenous mission leaders, he has discipled 10 Timothys who are directing the work. Each of them in turn will be able to lead dozens of additional workers who will have their own disciples. Along with his wife, he set an apostolic pattern for their workers similar to that of the Apostle Paul. On one mission tour that lasted 53 days, he and his family traveled by bullock cart, that's a type of cow, and foot into some of the most needy areas of an eastern state. There, working in the intense heat among people whose lifestyle was extremely primitive, this is the sales pitch, he saw hundreds come to know the Lord throughout the journey. Demons were cast out. Miraculous physical healings took place daily. Thousands heard the good news eagerly. In just one month, he formed 15 fellowships and assigned elders to stay behind and build them up in the faith. Similar miraculous movements are starting almost everywhere in Asia. Now that's good news. That's exciting, yes? Except for the part where you have to travel for 53 days sitting behind a cow, working in heat with primitive people who don't like to eat food that you like to eat. Anyone want to sign up for my next missions trip? No, of course not. Why? Because we're not designed to do... Oh, Phil's putting his hand up. I see that hand. I see that hand. I'm writing that down. The point is this. You and I can last seven days if we're lucky and we get access to Wi-Fi every third day. We don't like the food. We don't like the heat. We don't like the environment. We don't like the climate. And the people are really hard to understand because they don't speak any English. The point is this. We can support them. We can encourage them. We can disciple them. But we need to let them be the message of Jesus to their nation. Because they can travel for 53 days sitting behind a cow. It's better than walking. We buy them a push bike and they'll cycle 100 miles to share the gospel in a village that has never heard the name Jesus. I don't think you're going to do that. You wouldn't handle it. So you don't have to sign up for that, but you've got to understand the strategy for evangelism overseas is nationals evangelizing nationals. And that is why we are so committed to building this Bible school in Indonesia. They are crying out for pastors that understand the culture, the climate, the people, and the needs. There are needs for church planting all over Indonesia, down in Timor and across on Nias Island and up in Sumatra. Even though Christians get persecuted and churches get burnt down in Aceh, they're still saying, please, will you send people that would tell us about Jesus? So our vision is to build this Bible school to support what's already happening. There's a curriculum. It's based in hermeneutics and apologetics and, and, and biblical scriptural teaching. But they're doing it in a really rough place. They can't scale it. They can't multiply their efforts. They can't get registered with the government because they don't have a classroom. And we could do this for under $100,000. We can buy the land for under 15000 We can have a base. Why is this a good idea? Well, it means we've got three classrooms. We can have three classes going at the same time. We can accommodate up to 30 students. I will put a pitch roof on it, Gary, I promise you. Oh, yeah, well, there is actually more because there are two apartments for guest tutors that travel to do the teaching, and they are open to us being part of that team. 
Hink's already signed up. There are, there's accommodation for up to 30 students with bathroom facilities. The bottom left, this is just a, an idea I've got, but the bottom left room is a, is a, is a um, fellowship room for eating and cooking meals and, and, um, and lo- doing life together. There's conference rooms, there's offices. It means that we can grow this school and send people out into the nations. We're also investigating the opportunity to bring one of their students to New Zealand next year on furlough for study so that she can learn better English, so that she can be part of our ministry school and so that we can have this exchange program. Imagine if I could send some of my interns to Indonesia for six weeks. Can't wait till the day I say goodbye. Not all of them. But imagine how much they'd grow to spend six weeks in Indonesia studying with Indonesian students and seeing how the gospel is taught there. That's just an amazing discipleship opportunity. Amen would be good. Come on, we can do this. This But the reason we're committed to it is because we believe Indonesians are more effective in changing their nation than the white man. Does that mean we're not going? Of course it doesn't mean that. We will continue to go. Our job is to disciple them so they can be the mission team. This is the whole point. All right, so we've got to grow church leaders. It's not a whim. It's something we're excited about. Let me, let me read you another quote. Yeah, I'm mindful of the time, but I've just, I'm so excited about what's going on. So um, can you hang in? Okay. Here's what this guy says. He was going on this journey. Look, he's even got pictures in the book for those of you who like pictures. For the first time, this man says, I began to understand the goal of all mission work, the perfecting of the saints into sanctified, committed disciples of Christ. The local church, a group of believers, is God's ordained place for the discipleship process to take place. God's plan A for the redemption of the world is the church, and he has no plan B. Who is the church? Look to your left, look to your right. We are the church. The best place for missions to begin is in the discipleship of the people of God because they are the ministers of God. And for that reason, we must make the local church stronger, and that includes our church. That is why we are so committed to investing in the ministry school that will be launched in 2020. Next year, we're running that as a launch program for you as our night school. We're putting resource into it. We're researching it. We've got people bringing in content. We're structuring a curriculum that will help make the local church stronger. There's a need for us to be responsible with what God's given us as a mandate. Firstly, by prophetic utterance, you will be an apostolic training center, sending people into the nations to preach the gospel, to disciple others. We've got to have our DNA ingrained into us when we do that. We've got to understand that God's given us this. I almost feel like it's that parable of the talents. The master gave us a talent, and he's watching to see what we do with it. And if I bury it under a tree, it's not going to go well for me. So we're going to make sure we do something with it. And that's what this looks like. Taking what God's given us as a talent in the biblical um, Um, parable terms, and we're going to do something with it. We've got the framework, but this is also a powerful way for us to interact with India and Indonesia. 
I've already been teaching some of this content in Indonesia at the youth conferences and Bible school. And it's changing their world. Setting them free of stuff, and we want the same for you. This is definitely empowerment with a purpose. So you can connect with our ministry school next year. We've got 10 sessions over 10 months. You can register online. It's going to be in a sort of multimedia and classroom environment. There's some online stuff to do. We're building that now, and we're really, really excited about it. We hope you want to be part of it. This is our mission. So I want to just get quickly to the final part of today. I want to speak about how you would connect with us with regards to the vision pledge. And if I could get the host team to hand out the pledge cards. Some of you have already got them. Many of you have filled them in. But I want to make sure everyone's got one in their hand so they know what I'm talking about. Think about the first test that Jesus had. God's goal was humility. God's goal was humility. Humility is trusting God when he asks you to participate. Humility is putting aside your personal need to be obedient to God. Humility is seeing our lives as God says it is. Paul writes to the church, he says, God is the one who gives seed to the sower. So God is not the sower, God is the seed provider. You are the sower. So why would you connect with the vision pledge? Well, let's look at a church who responded in a positive way, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2. This is called the Macedonian church. So Paul is, is talking, he's writing to Corinth, but he's talking about some other people. And he says in verse 2, this church in Macedonia, here it is up on the screen for you, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2. They, the Macedonians, are being tested by many troubles. Oh, that sounds familiar. Hmm. They're being tested, and they are very poor. Some of you say, oh, well, now I know you're talking about me. Um, they are being tested, but they're also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. What does that mean? They take their eyes off their circumstances and be obedient to God in humility. It's not about your circumstance. It's about your following God. That's what humility looks like. Humility is putting aside preference, putting aside circumstance, not being one that denies God, but responding in a humble way before him saying, well, Lord, the answer is yes. What's the question? That's what humility looks like. God's goal is that we would walk in humility. What's the second part? 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 3. What's God's goal in the second uh, temptation, it is that we would walk in faith. What does faith look like? Believing God what he says, not what we see. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, not yet seen. Second Corinthians 8 verse 3, in speaking of the Macedonians, Paul writes, for I can testify they not only gave what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. Some of you are being tested in the level of your response. I said right at the beginning of this journey that I believe there are some people in the church who are going to be asked by God to step into a realm that they are not comfortable with. 
That's called the faith zone. I believe that looks like some people giving a pledge, like maybe $1,000. It's a lot of money for any family. But what if God said 5000 That's a lot more money. What if God says 10000 Like God's not saying a number based on your situation. Because he's not limited by your situation. Faith is trusting God's provision when you cannot see how. That's a big statement. Faith is trusting God's provision when you cannot see how. Jamie and I and Stu uh, went to a missions conference a couple years ago, and they did faith pledges through the weekend. We were at the missions conference, and, and um, the pastor there said, hey, look, you know, might have put your faith pledge in on the first day, but maybe God's asking you to change it. And he said, in their experience over the 17 years that they've done that as a church, many times people just keep increasing it as, as they respond to what God's saying to them as the revelation grows. And this week, the Lord's asked me if we would increase our amount. And I go back to Kathy, my tail between my legs, a little bit nervous. And I remind her of what she said to me many years ago. This is a lesson for all you young husbands. Because Kathy said to me a long time ago, it's not an I can do it pledge, it's a faith pledge. not an I can do it pledge, it's a faith pledge. God will call you to a place of faith. It's not about you, it's about God. Finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5. What is God's goal? That we would worship him. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 5. I'll read verse 4 as well. The Macedonians begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Oh sorry, there's a slide there for those of you that need it. Well, look, let's go back to the second one. They gave more than they could afford. Faith is trusting God's provision when you cannot see how. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They did even more than we hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. Now, I wonder what your response was when you saw the vision pledge. I'm also wondering if that's why some people aren't coming to church this month. I've been around church a long time. The point is this. Let us ask God what he's saying to us. Let us ask God how we can move to a place of righteousness. Because remember... The third temptation is us trying to be God and give him the answers. In fact, all he wants is you to worship him. Giving is a form of worship. Financially surrendering yourself to him is when you say, God, you're on the throne, not me. I wonder how you're going to respond today. I do want you to do it prayerfully. I do want you to do it obediently. And I do want you to do it in agreement with your spouse if you have one. Let me close with this quote, and then, um, Ash, do you want to bring the um, spaceman thing over here? Um, if you want to fill it in today and put it in there, you can. If you want to email the office, it's, highly, it's incredibly confidential. Uh, so I don't, I just again, I say this all the time, I don't see numbers attached to names. 
That's, that's not how I run the church. So, Finally, um, this pastor guy is having an encounter with God. He's actually driving his car, and he uh, begins to tremble with fear in the car. And suddenly he felt the presence of someone else in the car, and he realized the Spirit of the Lord was speaking to him. And the Spirit of the Lord said this, I'm not in any trouble, says the Lord, that I need someone to beg for me or help me out. I made no promise that I will not keep. It is not the largeness of the work that matters, but only doing what I command. All I ask of you is that you be a servant. For all who join with you in the work, it will be a privilege, a light burden for them. I wonder how you'll respond. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word teaches us how to live with you. Thank you for Jesus, the example, who was tested and did not falter. And Lord, we ask that you give us strength as we are tested. As we look to the vision and the future and the journey that we're on, God, I ask that you give us strength to stand in the test, to stand in the storm, to stand in this moment, to keep our eyes on you, not to take you off the throne, not to try to be God, but to live with humility, faith, and a lifestyle of worship. Lord, I commend each member of our family to you. I ask that they would be blessed in the knowledge and the comfort of your presence in their lives. They would be strengthened in the revelation of how much you love them. And I reaffirm the truth that your love for them is not determined by what they do. Finally, God, may you give them the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that strengthens them in all purpose. The strength sufficient for the journey that our lives would give you glory. I bless them this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.